there's a um, couple stories we're going to look at. But the two stories end with this sentence, and I, I want to start at the end before I go back to the beginning. And Jesus answered them, healthy people don't need a doctor. Sick people do. I have come to call not those who think they are righteous, but those who know they are sinners and need to repent. My dad died uh, prematurely at 66. His cause of death was fear of doctors or fear of reality. Dad was probably close to 400 pounds, had very high blood pressure. He, for the last 20 years of his life, had worked um, delivering high-end antiques all over the country. That, that job requires a Department of Transportation annual physical. My dad took the last physical he had passed, which was 10 years ago, and he, he would photocopy it and white out the date and put the new date on it, and then he would send that in. He, he got his prescription drugs for his blood pressure and his diuretics from, I think, a pharmacy in Canada. Dad and I weren't necessarily close. I didn't see him much as an adult. But I was with him two weeks before he died, and, and when I was with him, his ankles would swell three or four or five times greater than they should all day long, and then at night, he would eliminate that. I didn't know much, but I just asked him, Dad, are you okay? And he said, oh, I'm fine. His, birth, his, uh, his death certificate says he died of heart failure. It should have said he died of denial. But I can't be too hard on my dad. I, I'm not that different. There's something about the reality and, and doctors that somehow, I'm not all that honest. I don't know about you, but I'm supposed to go get my teeth cleaned every six months. I never do. And when I do, they always ask me this question, do you floss? It feels like a trick question. And I know they're going to ask me, so that morning I always floss. Because I don't want to be a liar and have to write them some confession later. So I always say, sometimes. That seems honest. Have you ever been to the doctor and the doctor says, do you exercise? Yeah. How often? A couple times a week. Of course, I'm rounding up. And I'm including things like, tying my shoes and going upstairs for something. And, and how often are you supposed to go to the doctor to get a physical? Does anybody go once a year? Oh, I know. It's because we're too busy, right? And, or is it because we don't really want to know the truth? Yeah, I think... I think my fear of reality could be fatal. And this is a harsh statement, but I think this is how Jesus would summarize what he just said. 
and that is that he can do very little to help someone who's unwilling to admit that they are sick. We're going to look at the calling of two of Jesus' first disciples, a couple of the guys who got in on the ground floor of the whole enterprise. It's found in Luke chapter 5. I, I, I've got a, a New Living Translation. Don't let that throw you off. If you're reading along, it, it'll be close enough in whatever translation you have. Let me read this story for you. I'm going to read the, the first story, the calling of Simon, and then in a little while we'll close with the calling of Levi or Matthew. Simon's also known later on as Peter. One day, as Jesus was preaching on the shore of the Sea of Galilee, great crowds pressed in on him to listen to the word of God. He noticed two empty boats at the water's edge, for the fishermen had left them and were washing their nets. Stepping into one of the boats, Jesus asked Simon, its owner, to push it out into the water. So he sat in the boat and he taught the crowds from there. Now, when he'd finished speaking, he said to Simon, Now, Go out where it is deeper and let down your nets to catch some fish. Master, Simon replied, we worked hard all last night and didn't catch a thing. But if you say so, I'll let the nets down again. And this time, their nets were so full of fish they began to tear. A, a shout for help brought their partners in the other boat, and soon both, boot, bo both boats were filled with fish and on the verge of sinking. When Simon P Peter realized what had happened, he fell to his knees before Jesus and he said, Oh Lord, please leave me. I'm too much of a sinner to be around you. For he was awestruck by the number of fish they had caught, as were the others that were with him, his partners, James and John, the sons of Zebedee, who were also amazed. Jesus replied to Simon, Don't be afraid. From now on, you'll be fishing for people. And as soon as they landed, they left everything and followed Jesus. I think Jesus would agree that we're all sick. That's why he, he said in that last sentence I read you that those who think they are righteous are the ones he, he, doesn't, he can't offer much to. It doesn't mean that they are righteous. It doesn't mean that they are well. And in Jesus' upside-down kind of way, it's, it's the people who begin to realize that they are sick are actually the people who are about to become healthy. The sick people are the healthy people. The people who are healthy are, in fact, the sickest of all people. Kind of like my dad. Kind of like me. So we're going to notice, even in these stories, how sick people who are actually about to become healthy people how life interacts with them and how they interact with life and how they do things maybe a little differently. The first thing that I noticed, or one of the things I noticed, is that sick people who are actually about to be healthy people are willing to look a little foolish. Now, you, you, you sort of have to imagine the scene we're on the Sea of Galilee, and there's a lot of people around. They've all kind of pressed up against Jesus, so many that he's now had to 
sort of, he keeps backing up, and now he's at the water's edge, so he just gets in a boat and goes off just a little, a few feet, and they're not going to come walking into the water, so now he's safe, and he can teach them. There's a lot of people. And off to the side, while he's doing that, we see Peter and his gang of fishermen are over there cleaning their nets. Fishing is something that you did at night. And then at the end of the, of the shift, as you scraped through the, these huge nets, maybe the size of this room that you pulled through and kind of drug along the bottom and trapped fish in, they would get seaweed and grass and rocks and dirt, and it would take hours and hours to clean them. They had just been through all of this. They didn't catch one fish. Peter's a pro, but didn't catch a fish. And we'll pick up the story here because it says when Jesus finished talking, he says to Simon Peter, now I want you to go out where it is deeper. Interesting little note, that's not where you typically catch fish when you're netting for fish. The fish would have a, too much opportunity as the net is slowly dropping to just scatter. You typically throw your nets in the more shallow water. But Jesus says go out there where it's deep. Now, I don't know. I mean, I'm, I know he's, he's God, so he knows everything. But as far as we know, he's never been much of a fisherman. That's not how Jesus was known. He was a teacher and a carpenter. So now a teacher and a carpenter is telling a professional fisherman who just spent all night doing the best he could at his craft to go catch fish in front of everybody. And if he throws those nets out once more, it will take hours and hours and hours to clean them. I don't know what's happening in this intersection of, of Simon Peter's life and Jesus, but Peter is willing to do what Jesus asked him to do, even though it's going to look and feel a little silly. Do you know what the hardest part of uh, going for therapy or counseling is? Admitting that you have to go to care counseling or therapy. The hardest part of joining a 12-step group is that first step that I'm powerless. There's something innate in us that is, for some reason, ashamed that we're not better than we are. And we're embarrassed. And somehow, if only we can hide it, maybe it'll go away. If I don't actually go to the doctor, then they can't tell me I'm 20 pounds overweight. What a great solution. Much easier than any diet I can try. We're embarrassed that we need help. And it's what often prevents us from getting help. I had this crazy experience with my son on his 18th birthday. His um, best friend and my best friend, um, who happened to be father and son also, we, uh, we took a trip to Lake Powell. And we've gone lots of times to Lake Powell. And we had this rinky-dinky, just terrible little boat. 
Um, but it would putt, putt, putt and get us out there. And so we always had a great time. But we got there late one evening. And so we were going to just go ahead and stay at the marina. And then the next morning we were going to go out and, and do our fun thing. And we're sitting at the back of the boat. And I had never seen this. I've been to Lake Powell 15, 20 times. I've never seen this. There's a, a big marina, lots of, lots of little crappy boats like mine, and then there's huge yachts and everything you can imagine, hundreds of them. And, and, and these marinas are, are just great big docks that are covered. Not super wide. The, the, the dock itself is about the width of one of these rows. And we're sitting back there just kind of enjoying the sunset. And, and you, we hear this electric scooter. I've never seen an electric scooter on the marina, but I hear this electric scooter, and it's and kind of the, the planks, beep, 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 very slow. They don't go very fast. It's kind of about this speed. You could walk as fast. I don't know the advantage, but this guy. So he, he goes by, and I remember we sort of waved at him. And, and as he went by, we didn't get that friendly marina kind of stuff. Usually people are pretty, pretty jovial, like to kind of connect. And, and all, all we get was sort of this sour and uh, just a finger up. Like that. So he walked by, we're, hey, how you doing? Finger up. All right, that's fine. Goes to the end of the dock. We're sitting there. And then we hear him coming back. And he has a drink in his hand, which is, this is, this is a little unusual. So he's got a little electric scooter and a drink. And he goes by, same thing. We kind of like that. We get the finger. It's the right finger. It's not a bad finger, but it's a finger, neither, nonetheless. And so, and we're there. Just moments later, as he comes out of sight, as he leaves our sight, we hear this bang, splash. And so we go just hauling down to the end. And there on the corner, apparently, from best I can tell, he had cut the corner but missed. And he and his scooter had plunged into the bay. And he is holding onto a rope. No scooter. And we're freaking out. The guy is completely soaked, hanging on. And we say to him, oh my gosh, are you all right? What can we do? Honest truth. I'm fine, I got this. Is there anything we can do for you? I'm fine. I got this. It was the most remarkable experience. The guy was in desperate need, but did not want us to know that. Now, I'm here to tell you, it's not a big secret that he could have used a little help. <laughs> but he didn't want anybody to help him. One of the, I guess, the, the big barriers to people being helped by Jesus is they're just too embarrassed to admit that they need help by Jesus, that Jesus might know something that they don't know. But for some reason, Simon Peter, although he is a pro, he has at least the humility in this moment. Sick people who are about to become healthy people are willing to sometimes look or feel foolish. They also know when it's time to stop trusting their instincts. This little dialogue with Peter and Jesus goes like this. Peter, I want you to go out into the deep water and, and catch some fish. Master, 
We worked hard all last night and didn't catch a thing. I'm telling you, this is probably not going to go well. I know what I'm doing here. This is, I've spent a lot of time. But if you say so, I'll let the nets down again. Simon Peter's instincts were that this isn't going to go well, but Jesus had some new information for him, and he in this moment decided, I'll do what Jesus has asked me to do. I'll trust Jesus instead of my instincts. I'll admit I'm not a person who would hold to the philosophy that all the answers are within you. In recovery, there's this expression, maybe you've heard it, that the brain that got you into trouble cannot be the same brain that's going to get you out of trouble. You're going to need some outside intervention if you're going to resolve some of your sickness. The same brain that got you in trouble is not going to be the same brain that's going to get you out of trouble. Now, I believe that that God has put his thumbprint into the DNA of every person. I, I believe that the Holy Spirit can speak to me. But when I have this sort of this moment when it is either what I think, my instinct, or what I am being told I know to be true, I'm better off to go with what I'm hearing Jesus clearly tell me. Let me say something real quickly about our instincts. Your instincts, your instincts probably served you very well as a child. I don't know what your childhood was like. In a few moments, I'll share just a a little glimpse of mine. But my instincts actually helped me survive my childhood. But those very same instincts that helped me survive my childhood will not help me survive my adulthood. I'll give you a sort of a, an animal instinct. If you have a pet, a dog or a cat, and your dog or cat gets injured, what will your dog or cat do? It will hide. Its instincts tell, tell it in the same way that your instincts tell you that when you're injured, when, you, when you're injured, you're vulnerable. And when you're vulnerable, you, you are at risk to predators, and you better go hide. You better become as small as you can. One of the ways I survived my alcoholic childhood was to become as small as I could, to disappear at every opportunity, to not upset anybody. It helped me survive my childhood, but it has been hell on my marriage. That instinct, when it comes up against A truth. You've got to go with the truth. Even though it served a purpose, it won't serve that purpose now. And people who are sick and know they are sick, but they're about to become healthy, know that. They they somehow trust a new truth more than their instincts. Sick people who are about to get healthy know that this healing has come from outside of them. 
And it's not because they somehow are so deserving. This is how Peter expresses it. It says when Simon Peter realized what had happened, when he had, he had trusted that Jesus' word was better than his instinct, and he threw the, the nets down, and they, they begin catching so many fish, they never in his life he'd experienced catching this many fish. Never had happened. The, 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 the biggest windfall he'd ever had. And in that moment, it says he falls to his knees before Jesus and says, oh, Lord, please leave me. I'm too much of a sinner to be around you. He knows that he doesn't deserve this kind of healing. And I, I would say I think he's right. I think he's right. But Jesus doesn't, doesn't leave him there or shame him there. Jesus says something very interesting because sick people who encounter the truth of Jesus, they get a whole new reality, a whole new way of seeing things, a new, a new reality. Jesus says it like this, Simon, don't be afraid because from now on, you're going to be fishing for people. Don't be afraid. Sick people who are about to become healthy people get a new reality from Jesus. Now, I will say this. Usually, when someone tells you to stop feeling something is about the least helpful advice you can ever get. When somebody tells you to stop being afraid, um, stop being scared or anxious, stop being so depressed, what they are also saying is, because if you don't, it's just going to keep getting worse. Stop doing this because it's just going to get worse if you show it. That's not what Jesus is saying. Jesus is, is not saying what I experienced when I was 12 years old. When I was 12, I can remember many, many, many evening suppers. Usually by supper time is when my mom would be pretty well on drunk. My stepdad was a very cold and sort of abusive man. And I can remember often I would be at the dinner table. I can picture the whole scene. And my mom would say something mean. And it would make me cry. Crying irritated my stepdad. I didn't want to cry. I'm going to be honest with you. I wasn't trying to cry. I didn't at 4 o'clock in the afternoon start thinking of ways that I could irritate my stepdad. And I know crying at dinner will always do that. Never once. But when my mom would say something mean and, and hurt me and I would feel betrayed, and then I would start to cry and my older brother might make fun of me, all of this compounded into my stepdad telling me this. Stop crying, or I'll give you something to cry about. Again, never helpful information. Is that what Jesus is doing? Is Jesus shaming Simon? Tell him to stop feeling like that? I, um, I said goodbye to my um, granddaughter this morning. We 
put her and her family back on the plane to, to Wyoming. If I come off into the, to the sanctuary, I'm, I'm warning you now that every sermon will include my granddaughter in some form. She is just the highlight of my life. Nothing even comes close. Her dad, because they live in Wyoming, and this is, he in the last eight years has become obsessed with hunting. That's just what you do in Jackson, Wyoming. This year he got a couple of elk, and what they do is they, to dress, I don't, I'm not going to gross you out too much, but they dress them out and they let them hang in the garage where it's cool for a couple of weeks to, to make the meat um, more tender. Well, my granddaughter Frankie just got freaked out with dead carcasses in her garage. She transitioned. At, at the beginning, she wanted to go every hour to see it. And then after a couple of weeks, she did not want to go into the garage at all. Well, she comes to my house, and I'm, I'm getting her out of the car, and we're, we pulled into the driveway. And she says, Poppy, no garage. Poppy, no garage. And I've been told, I know the story of what she's saying. Now, I could tell her, oh, stop it, Frankie. That's silly. Or I could say, oh, Frankie, there's nothing to be afraid of. Let me show you. And I opened the garage with a little code. And there's no carcass in Poppy's garage. I changed the way she saw my garage. She had a different vision. And that's what made her not afraid. I do have the sense that, that Peter, like us, is, is sort of terrified of his own reality, his own inadequacies, that he's, he's confronting that here he is, a, a professional fisherman, and let's face it, it's not going that well for him. And then he, he meets Jesus and he becomes undone. He, he is flooded by the, by the generosity and graciousness of Jesus. And he has the appropriate response. How can I be in your presence? And Jesus gives him this new reality. You're going to become a fisher of people. You're not too much for me, Peter. You're exactly what I need. You're exactly what I want. You're perfect for the job of fishing for people, just like you are. This sick, but getting healthy kind of a guy. We're going to look at one more experience, a quality of people that are moving from being sick, but actually are going to be healthy. It's in this second story of a, of a um, early, early disciple. It's in the same chapter, chapter 5. Levi, who later we'll know as Matthew, Levi is a tax collector. That's really important information. When I say tax collector in a, in a room like this, it has very little impact. 
it means really very little to us. There'll be places in the Bible where you will see this distinction, sinners and tax collectors. And just so you know, tax collector is like a worse category of sinner. There is perhaps no more despicable person to the listeners, the Jewish listeners of this, these stories than a tax collector. I grew up in Alabama in the 60s, Birmingham, Alabama. I came from this crazy family. My mom and dad married in Sweden. My mom is from Sweden. My dad's a hillbilly. And they, they married there in Stockholm, and then my mom, her first trip to the United States, she lands in Birmingham, Alabama in 1958. I didn't realize that I had grown up in such a racist home. Unbelievably racist home. A few weeks ago, side note, I, I went to Ferguson on a freedom ride. I wanted to experience what my brothers and sisters of color are experiencing. And I had to admit, I've always thought of myself as not being a racist. But it's in there. Racism in my family was just the way life was. In my school, in my neighborhood, it's just the way it was. I had this experience when I was eight years old. I was at my stepmother's doctor's office. She was the receptionist. This doctor's office was in North Birmingham. My dad lived in North Birmingham. At that time, he wasn't a very resourced per person. North Birmingham in the 60s had transitioned from a white community to a predominantly African-American community. But my dad hadn't quite made enough money to get out. I didn't know until just this last year that I went every other weekend for years and years and years to my dad's house, which was only about three or four blocks away from the North Birmingham church bombing. I must have driven by that church hundreds of times and never once did somebody point out that's where that horrible, horrible thing happened. It was just a racist place. And I was in the, her doctor's office, which was this nice and, and very well-appointed and bright office, and I was getting a, a drink of water when her coworker came and grabbed me and pulled me away from the fountain. And she says, what are you doing? That's a, an N, that horrible epithet. That's an N fountain. We don't drink there. I know she could see that I was really confused, because I was. And she said, come here. I'd been in this doctor's office, I'm sure, several times. I'd never seen this. And she took me around the corner. And there was an entirely different waiting room. It was dark, and it was benches. And it was crowded. And it was all African-American people. I asked her, what, what would happen if, if they wanted to come sit in our waiting room or drink out of our fountain? And she said, well, 
The law says we can't stop them. But I guarantee a doctor won't be seeing them today. All that part of the story is completely true. The next part I've made up. And that night I went to a party at her house. And there at her party, she had invited all her racist friends. Oh, you could tell they were skinheads and they had their racist tattoos. And there in the middle of the party was Jesus. That idea of being despicable. As close as I can come to it today is people that are just hatefully racist. But you got to understand when I read this little portion here, the tax collector to everybody listening has the same impact. And you've got to get your head around why is Jesus doing this? Later, as Jesus left town, he saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at his tax collector's booth. You see, the, the Romans had come and occupied the sacred space, the Jewish homeland, and they wanted their money. And the way they got their money was they would hire Jews to get their money for them. And the Jews would extort from their own people the money to give to the occupiers. They were the worst of all kinds of traitors. They were becoming personally wealthy at the expense of their own family, their own countrymen. And that money was going to the people that were oppressing them. There is no greater hatred than for a tax collector. And they stood there by the gate so that when you brought your, your goods in and out, you got taxed. Our story is very simple. It simply says, Jesus saw him and speaks these words. Follow me and be my disciple. So Levi got up, left everything, and followed him. Here's the part of the story that I was making up, but we find here. It says, later, Levi held a banquet in his home with Jesus as the guest of honor. And many of Levi's fellow tax collectors and other guests also ate with him. But the Pharisees and their teachers of religious law complained bitterly to Jesus' disciples. Why do you eat with such scum? And Jesus answered, healthy people don't need a doctor. Sick people do. I have come to call not those who think they are righteous, but those who know they are sinners. And need to repent.
Levi's story, we don't need a lot of information because we can figure it out. But the minute Jesus said, Levi, follow me. Levi was done being a tax collector. Sick people are willing to follow Jesus. Healthy people aren't. Last little observation. Both stories, both stories contain one sentence that is the same in both. And it is the sentence. Both Simon and Levi, it says, left everything and followed Jesus. In Simon's story, it was on the heels of the biggest windfall he had ever experienced. I don't know how much money boats filled with fish almost to the point of sinking is worth. But the story is that as soon as they got to shore, he just left it and followed Jesus. And Levi is sitting at his very lucrative position near the gate. And the minute Jesus called him, he just left it. He left everything. Was that a lot, everything? Was it expensive? Was it, was it painful? Was it hard to do? No, you see, sick people, sick people know how to properly, properly value getting well. My son was nine. Took him to the doctor because he had pink eye. Well, at least that's what we thought, and then the doctor confirmed it. It was in the fall, I remember that. But his pink eye wasn't getting any better. It had become almost completely red on the inside. And then it began to bulge. It began to push out farther and farther. We were really worried, but we had taken him to the doctor. He was a good, really good little football player. I remember I took him to, a, it was Saturday, I took him to the game. He started throwing up, and he said he didn't want to play. And now I got scared. So I took him right from there, I took him right to the emergency room. The doctor ordered a CAT scan. I remember I was in the booth. He was in that little tube, and I was in the booth there with the tech. And he just said, there it is. There was this mass, huge mass behind my son's eye that was pushing his eye out. For sure, for sure maybe the scariest moment of my life. They thought he had cancer. And I was, I was back home, distraught, calling all my friends to pray, and I got a call from the doctor. They had searched, and they'd found a, an oculoplastic surgeon, a doctor who's board certified in the eye and plastic surgery. He and I were talking, and I could tell he was trying to prepare me based on what he saw. This was bad. Turned out he was a Christian. Now, I'll be honest with you, I could have cared less if he was a Christian, if he was going to be a good doctor. But this was a bonus. And as we talked, 
he asked if he could pray for us, and I said, sure, we've been praying like crazy. So the next morning, my son went in for a biopsy. Long and short of it is, this doctor came out and said, I believe I've seen a miracle. It turned out that it was just some mass, and they could treat it with, treat it with steroids. He told me later, he said, when I've seen what I saw in your son's x-ray and all the information, every time, it's been cancer. Now, let's suppose that when he called that night and he was this double certified person who could help my son, I, I did something I, that's unusual for me. You see, I'm very cheap. I usually have got to find a deal. I can't pay retail for anything. I've got to find it used. I've got to shop around. I can't just buy something. I, I didn't say to him, hey, how much is this going to cost, and do you have any coupons? I've never once, never once, maybe until just this moment, have I ever thought about what it costs to have that procedure. I don't care what it would have cost. It would have had, there would have been no, it would have been irrelevant. If he said, we can fix your son, but it'll cost everything you have, I don't care. Who cares? There's no comparison. It would never feel expensive. Yes, following Jesus costs everything, but it's not expensive. You don't even feel like it's expensive. Because sick people who are about to become healthy people, they know the value of this. Discipleship. Really, really cheap. When you look at what you get. Let me pray for us. Lord, you... Um, You often, it seems, confront us with our reality. And I know for me, it scares me. My reality scares me. Who I am scares me. My weakness scares me. My brokenness scares me. And I, I want to avoid it. But I hear in these stories that that's kind of the stuff you can work with. So Lord, I pray for me and I pray for my friends here at the sanctuary. That, that like Simon and like Levi, we would learn how to just say yes to your reality. Help us not be so afraid of your unbelievable and extravagant grace and love for us. It's terrifying, but give us courage. We confess we are sick people, but you can make us well. Amen.